Welcome to Inside the Lab, where we talk about anything and everything that's happening to today's clinical laboratories. Hey, my name is Kelly Swales, and I am one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer, and I work in the publications department at ASCP. And my name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the chief medical officer of ASCP and also one of your co-hosts. So today we're going to be talking about infectious disease as a bridge between anatomic and clinical pathology. We've got some great guests lined up, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And it's my pleasure to welcome our very special guest. Let's start with Claire McCormick-Ball. She's an APCP-trained pathologist who joined the faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in 2019 after completion of her medical microbiology fellowship at UT Southwestern. She completed her APCP training at Scott and White in Temple, Texas, and defended her PhD in microbiology prior to attending medical school at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Her interests include medical education at all levels and utilization of the laboratory. Andrew Clark is an assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in the Department of Pathology and the associate director of Clements University Hospital Microbiology Laboratory. He completed a CPEP accredited postdoctoral fellowship in medical and public health microbiology at the National Institutes of Health and is interested in antimicrobial susceptibility and anaerobe pathophysiology. We also have Jonathan Wilcox, who's a third year APCP resident at the University of Vermont Medical Center. He will be receiving his fellowship training in clinical microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota in 2022. He attended medical school at A.T. Still University, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, and his interests include the impact of climate change on vector-borne illnesses and molecular diagnostics. And last but certainly not least, we have Karen Jarowski as a microbiology department supervisor. She attended the University of Texas at Austin and received a BS in medical technology. She's worked at Parkland Health and Hospital System in Dallas, Texas for almost two decades. And she was a lead tech for 11 years and was recently promoted to supervisor in microbiology. Thanks guys and welcome. Thank you. So first I just need to get a little bit of CME housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is an accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Thanks, Kelly, for that important information. Let's start off. Pathology has become more and more specialized over the past several decades. Are there specialists in infectious disease pathology? What makes infectious disease pathology unique in terms of the division between APCP? Anyone can answer this one. Well, I'll jump in. So uh, this is Claire, and I absolutely believe that there are specialists in infectious disease pathology because I am one of them. So there may not be many of us. It's quite a small world out there, but we definitely do have APCP-trained microbiologists and then APCP-trained pathologists that participate in the evaluation of infectious disease pathology. And to follow up on that, I also am an infectious disease pathologist and microbiologist. That's what I did in my former life. Uh, and when I trained, there weren't very many of us. What, Claire and others, do you think, how, how many people do you think are now currently being trained? How many fellowships are out there for people that are interested? So um, I do think that the pathology fellowships out there, so the ACGME 
fellowships would be where most tissue would be evaluated. And there are only a handful of those. So across the entire country, Jonathan, you probably have a more recent take on this than I do, but less than 10 or about 10 would probably be the max that I think of in terms of fellowships that do formal training of infectious disease pathology. Jonathan, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I would echo that. I, it's, it's definitely a very kind of niche field. Certainly, I think that there are varying degrees of specialization within that. There are some people who who see consults from all over the world. I know that they do that at UT Southwestern Mayo Clinic. That they also do that. But I think any pathologist with, with AP training to a degree probably ends up coming out of a microbiology fellowship, being something of an infectious disease specialist. I know here at the University of Vermont, while we don't have a formal consult service, our microbiologists regularly review infectious, infectious disease pathology. And so I think that uh, you, you can get as, as specialized in that as you want, or just by being a, by virtue of being a, a microbiologist with pathology training, I think you can uh, be involved in, in infectious disease pathology. Yeah, this is Andrew. I might also flip the script a little bit on that and say, but there are a lot of us out there that are sort of really within the realm of CP, but uh, fall into that that category of a specialist in, in infectious disease pathology. So I'm a I'm a PhD by training who has gone through um, postdoctoral training in clinical and public health microbiology, and this is a, a different route to take that kind of leads you in the same direction. There are a limited number of these programs out there as well for PhDs who you know are not uh, medically trained but uh, have an interest in this particular field. Um, and really function within the realm of the laboratory. Great. Getting back to my uh, original question, just to revisit it, what makes infectious pathology unique in terms of the division between APCP? And what I want to delve into with that is when we think about when most pathology trainees or even medical students are looking at pathology as a practice, they may look at heme path and say, oh, that's really bridging APCP. You know, you can do all these interesting things with flow and peripheral blood smears and lymph nodes, et cetera. But that's also true for infectious disease pathology. So how important is it that AP and CP communicate around infectious disease cases? So I really agree with you that you do have some obvious parallels and then some less obvious parallels. One thing that I think has really become very evident in pathology is that it's become more and more specialized within each of the organ systems. People are experts in different diseases, but oncology is confined to each of those different organ systems. Well, infectious disease affects everywhere. And being able to to have AP experience to be able to be comfortable in whatever tissue the slide is placed in front of, wherever the slide is, you know, from whatever tissue, then it really does behoove that pathologist or that microbiologist to um, know where they are because it can from head to foot. And it certainly comprises all of those organ systems, which is very different than what um, pathology has evolved into. Interesting. Other thoughts on that about that interface? Anyone else have any comments on that interface? I think kind of getting back to what we were talking about just earlier too, there's a unique role for multi, like multiple people and with diverse training in ID pathology, which is sort of unique to this discipline as compared to other realms of pathology. So, you know, we were talking about PhD microbiologists who received training. um, And then there's the infectious disease pathologists like, you know, yourself and Claire. And then, you know, another 
realm of this is, is these infectious uh, disease clinicians. So people who have gone through, you know, internal medicine training also can sometimes be involved in um, the laboratory. So, you know, I've been fortunate enough to interface with a couple of these individuals here at UT who really have that important benefit of patient interaction. And they bring a lot of that component which can help drive um, the diagnostic process as well. So, you know, ID path is unique in that, you know, there's a bunch of different backgrounds that sort of converge um, and it really helps to hammer out a diagnosis. Erin, I think I want to bring you into the, the conversation here a little bit. As a bench technologist in microbiology, how do you work with your anatomic pathology colleagues? Like where does the bench technologist fit in? Um, with anatomic pathology specifically, I think it's, Well, we have a good communication between the two areas because there will be times we need to inform each other of findings that are unexpected. For instance, and this is one I'm sure everybody's had, is when they find coccidioides spherules in tissue, we usually get a heads up call to take even extra precautions with any of the cultures set up on that patient. Um, We've had it go the other way also, where we've had tuberculosis isolated out of an autopsy specimen, and it was rather unexpected. So we communicate with, you know, people who have done autopsies or worked on those tissues so that they know, you know, just in case there's an exposure. So I think we have worked with AP, you know, there's a really good line of communication open here at Parkland. And Karen, I, I appreciate those comments. And, and then we could classify what you're describing as, you know, the role of communication for biosafety of the staff, you know, involved with samples, which I think is crucial and agree, echo that we had to do that at our hospital as well. Um, from the point of view of patient care, though, are, are there any, and this is for anyone, but Karen, you can answer first, are there any specific protocols in your in your hospital, in your microbiology lab, et cetera, where you for, for the patient care component, you have to interact with the AP side, whether it be, you know, plating certain types of samples that AP collects on your behalf a certain way, or, you know, a good example for, for my past life was something called the lung packet, where the AP people had to collect a whole series of samples that were then processed by the microbiology lab. And, you know, there had to be communication about what to collect, et cetera, et cetera. So are there any protocols that any of you have where there is that that direct communication between the two spaces? Oh, maybe Dr. McCormick can help me here. I'm trying to think if I can think of any specific situation. I don't know, Dr. McCormick, can you think of anything specific to our microbiology lab? So our experience generally is more clinical. So the clinical teams will collect specimens. And so they would collect a tissue for AP and then they would separately collect tissue or whatever for microbiology. So we we really have, we work independently of AP in that realm, but we do communicate with the clinical teams very much in terms of how to properly collect specimens and to remit them to the to the laboratory so that we can get the information that they need. One good example that I think of all the time that kind of spans the AP space and CP space is if you've got suspected H. pylori infection in, in the stomach. And so if someone feels like they've had multiple rounds of therapy and they're just not clearing the infection, then they can take specific tissue samples using endoscopy to send for culture and susceptibility. So at that point, but that's really more here at UT and at Parkland, we deal more 
in line with the clinical services instead of AP, we kind of work parallel. And, and to follow up on that, because I think that this this feeds right into the the next question that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, how does reviewing AP cases through your microbiologist lens help you facilitate care for your patients? In other words, you know, you, you've described that the clinicians are taking these samples, they go to the AP lab, they go to the CP lab, you know, someone has to look at all that and coordinate it, but there's also your eyes looking at a piece of tissue as a microbiologist. So how, how does that facilitate your care for patients? So I think as a ID trained microbiologist, I think I approach the cases a little differently than my strictly AP colleagues uh, uh, all over the place here. So with that different approach, I am able to, um, we had one, one case I can tell you is uh, this was a young woman who came in, she had his tumor like growth on her foot. She'd had it for years. And then the surgeons were like, okay, well off it comes and very good. I'm sure that's exactly what needed to happen, but they did not collect cultures. And so when the case was signed out, good news, there wasn't any evidence of malignancy, but it was signed out as fibrosis, inflammation, abscess. And then she was actually lost to follow up for a few years. When she came back, she represented with this growth again, it was even bigger. It, at this point, it had eroded into the bone. And so there was going to be some permanent disability. And when the surgeon's resected it again, no cultures were taken. But this time we were able to review the case. And when we reviewed it, we recognized that it was actually a mycetoma. And so there was, yes, there was fibrosis. Yes, there was abscess, but there was also granule formation. And there were bacterial tangles of bacteria that we were able to help tailor, not just the treatment for a resection, but also follow-up treatment to actually help resolve that infection, even though we did not have culture to, to guide us. But being able to tell it was fungal versus bacterial really helped in that regard. I, and I think there's a really good point to make here, Claire, because what you're describing is like a missed opportunity, right? If right. it had more communication, if ID had been involved, ID pathology had been involved, you know, you would have gotten that mycetoma diagnosis immediately, put her on some suppressive therapy, and she wouldn't have had the regrowth. And I think what we, you know, when I started in my practice 20 years ago, I would, you know, I was in training at the time, so let's say 15 years ago, that was the situation that would I would most commonly have is where someone would come in with a cyst on their hip, a surgeon would have cured, you know, curataged it two or three times. And then when they mm -hmm. come in with the encinococcus all down in their bone and they have to have a whole huge resection, et cetera, which could have all been avoided if they'd just been on suppressive therapy the whole time. You know, we don't, we don't want those kinds of stories. What we want is like you make the diagnosis. So I think that's really one of the things I want to express to the listeners of the podcast. And obviously the people on the podcast know what I'm talking about. That's where we need to get to is that the ID pathology microbiology correlation is not only happening between the two of them, but is happening with the surgical team before a surgery is happening with the ID team before a sample is taken so that the patient has the best outcome. And over the, the 10 or 11 years that I was in practice, you know, we got to that point where the clinicians or the surgeons would ask us in advance, you know, we suspect this, et cetera, et cetera, and you would get a better result for the patient. Um, and I think all systems have to unfortunately go through that. And so, you know, for those of you out there listening who don't have an infectious disease pathologist, you can likely find a lot of these horror stories in your current patient population. And the way to really avoid them is, is to find a way to have ID expertise and microbiology expertise be involved in the pre-planning and the planning process for these patients. 
I'm going to jump in here. You know, I'm a medical technologist. My most recent bench experience was in microbiology. And while we didn't have a dedicated infectious disease pathologist, which we've already ascertained is not that common, our micro department had a fantastic relationship with the infectious disease docs at the place where I worked it, you know, they came in every morning, 9am, they did their 9am rounds. They like, they looked, wanted to look at the plates on their patients. If they couldn't figure something out, they would talk about it with us. Um, They were really great at, you know, they would get a path report and it's like, yeah, you know, fungal, we think there's fungus here. And then they would be like, they would get on the phone with the pathologist and be like, can you take it to the folks over in micro? Can they, do they know what it is? Some, something like that. So I think, to your point, Dan, that interface is so, so important to have that conversation and to have that level of trust in each other's expertise. Kelly, I think what you're describing too is really, you know, the best of all possible worlds. It's it's really important to have that interface between ID, the clinical microbiology lab, and AP. On the AP side of things, you know, tissue is always going to be a much quicker answer if if you know that what you're looking for is there. You can see hyphae in tissue. The culture is going to be, you know, weeks behind that, days behind that, depending on what it is that you're dealing with. And so that can really inform, you know, the CP side of things and, you know, have those conversations with clinicians, you know, in real time who are actually taking care of the patients. That also helps us, you know, in the microbiology laboratory of, hey, I've, I've had conversations with, you know, Claire, for example, <laughs> on certain cases where she'll say, hey, look, I'm looking at this tissue. I think this looks like nocardia. I check our culture you know, records and whatnot. Oh, we're not actually culturing for that. Maybe we should set something up. So tailoring the workup around the AP findings can really, really be beneficial in this setting. Oh yeah, 100%. It's sort of, I know I'm jumping to heme a little bit, but it's sort of like whenever you're you're looking at a differential, it's like, hmm, wow, there's a whole lot of atypical limbs here. Hmm, they haven't ordered a mono test. Maybe I should suggest that they do. <laughs> you know, it's it's that sort of thing where you can really correlate with what you're seeing under the scope and and get on the get on the phone and with a doc and be like, mm, are you thinking this? Because maybe you should be. And I think the important take home from both of those conversations is that that's not a procedure driven or a policy driven approach, right? That is someone having expertise, recognizing something that they may think may improve patient care and reaching out to another colleague in another department to improve that patient's care by making that suggestion. It's not reflex testing. It's not critical values notification. And it's something that you have to have people who are willing to, you know, to have that conversation either with the clinicians or with the other parts of the lab in order to make that difference for that patient. And I think it's, it's vitally important to do that if you want to really impact Patients, for example, that have cancer as a differential who end up not having a cancer, the surgeon's happy, right? Oh, you don't have cancer. Great. Bye. But then six months later, the ID clinicians and the microbiology lab are trying to figure out what to do with that patient who's come back with a recurrence because they got put on steroids a month before. And that, that you know, so that pre-think is really important. I want, I want to switch gears slightly just while we're on this topic, but switch gears over to John uh, Wilcox in training. So how does your training in both APCP. So you've trained in both APCP. How does it impact your microbiology education? Like what, what do you bring you as a, as a trainee bring to the table when you're in microbiology um, because you have both of those experiences? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think any, anybody, any pathologist who's a pathology resident who's considering going into a CP field is always going to ask themselves, is it worth doing that extra year for AP or do I just do the three years of CP and, and, uh, move on. And that's something that everyone has to decide for themselves. But I think 
for me, I've found that the AP training has been worth it and has been, has been worthwhile. Um, I know one thing, at least in our, in our microbiology lab, the amount of time we actually spend sitting in a microscope looking at, at organisms is, is fairly small, maybe a few slides per day. On the AP side of things, the amount of time that we spend sitting at a microscope is quite large. So, so while maybe I'm not looking at microorganisms the whole time, I am honing uh, microscopy skills and becoming familiar with how to, to recognize things microscopically. Um, kind of as, as Dr. McCormick Baugh said, to be able to recognize what kind of tissue I'm in, what I'm working with, being able to work on some morphology. I know one classic example is helicobacter. I think every first year pathology resident struggles with, you know, what are, are these really uh, bacteria? Or am I seeing little mucus globules? And, uh, and that's something that every microbiologist needs to learn is, you know, how to differentiate organisms from possible confusion. But I also think it adds an element of clinical context that you often don't get in the CP lab. You know, pathology is kind of notoriously separated from the patients, but I think especially in the CP lab. On the AP side, we get a little bit more, I think we get a little bit closer to the patients. We get a little bit more involved in their care. We, we kind of dig a little deeper into their clinical history. You get to see the gross specimens that come in. You get to um, sometimes even see the patients, you know, maybe going on a cyto procedure. Um, and you really get to understand the patient's status. So that helps you understand significance of things. For instance, you know, we, we run who knows how many HPV tests every day. But when you actually sit down and you see a, a squamous cell carcinoma of the cervix, um, you know, or squamous dysplasia, and you make that connection between, oh, this is driven by by HPV, it really drives home the significance of the testing that we do in the microbiology lab and why it's important. Other examples would be uh, understanding the importance of immunosuppressed status in patients. You know, when you see a CMV on the slide in a, a patient who's immunosuppressed, that has a lot more significance than just getting a positive result in the lab. Um, and it leaves indelible impressions, things that, that you're more likely to remember we had a case of an autopsy that was a Lyme myocarditis. And that's something that you never forget. You, you'll never forget that. But, you know, I don't know how many Lyme tests we run every day and I, I don't think about it. Um, so I really think that it drives home the significance of what microbiologists do to see that, that extra side. Um, so I definitely feel like for me, it has been worth spending the extra year to, to get that AP training. Thank you. That's, that's very, I think, very insightful. And I, I would add, to that, you know, just to, to summarize the, the 10,000 foot view of what you're describing, you know, CP is volume, right? And AP is, is in depth of each patient. And that's all about ratios, right? In, in the clinical pathology lab, a hospital may do 9 million tests a year. And in the AP lab, they may do 100,000. There's a lot more riding on those AP because you've taken the time to do a surgery on a patient and take a sample. And there's some question that's there. As a matter of training, you have to dig into it more deeply. Uh, but on the CP side, we just, you know, we don't have time to do that unless it's an error or an issue or a Delta check is wrong or something. So I appreciate your comments. So on in that same vein, you know, what would you change about your APCP training that you've gone through in that regard to make you a better infectious disease pathologist, microbiologist? Like what about the current APCP training that you've gone through do you think could be improved so that you would be a better, you know, a better infectious disease pathologist or microbiologist? Yeah, I think that it can be a little bit easy when you're going through the the motions, especially as somebody who who never really wanted planned to go into AP. 
I recognize the value of it, but there's a lot of things in AP that sometimes it feels like you're going through the motions and it can be easy to lose sight of the long term. So I think spending extra time delving into what you're doing on AP from day to day. You know, if you come across an interesting HPV case, you know, where you can see this viral cytopathic effects, it can be easy to blow that off and think I'm going to see a million more of these. But I think taking the time to think about that patient, taking the time to think about the the pathophysiology that's going on, I, you know, I think there's a lot of value to be gained from pathophysiology that comes from seeing the tissue reaction. But we don't spend a lot of time, I don't think, talking about that. You know, if you, if you came across an interesting, I don't know, bacillary angiomatosis to talk about with your attending, the Bartonella interacts with the endothelial cells to produce that reaction. I think that, that can be missed opportunities that someone going into infectious disease pathology might not take advantage of if they're just trying to kind of get through their AP day. So I, I think, yeah, just taking advantage of that extra training and really trying to find ways to prepare for infectious disease as a career and not get too caught up in the, the day-to-day, but to uh, yeah, just to take advantage of it. I want to ask Andrew and Karen, how working with someone like Claire, who's an ID pathologist, how has that enhanced your your job? Has it made your job easier? Has it made it better? Have you learned more? Basically, how does Claire make your worlds better, you guys? <laughs> um, I think I have a star. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I think having Dr. McCormick is just invaluable to our lab and to our bench technologists. It is so Nice. I mean, as someone said before, um, microbiology and infectious disease are inextricably linked. And we talk to them probably more often than any other service in the hospital. And, you know, they are very free with calling us with special requests. And Dr. McCormick is our person, our conduit to those, to that service and to help ferret out what is a reasonable request and what is a not so reasonable request. And so in that respect, she really helps guide us in some of what is, you know, something that we should do or shouldn't do. And she's also, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but she's amazing (laughs) in being able to help teach us as bench technologists. There are all kinds, there is an experience spectrum in our lab from beginning to much older people like myself. And Claire has something to teach every one of us. And it's just, it's wonderful when she rounds with us every day and helps answer everything from basic questions on urines all the way to the complicated AFB questions. So it's invaluable to us. I'm on the other side of the street from Claire. So we're actually operating different hospitals, but she serves as a reference for a lot of our complicated cases um, on this side. We oftentimes need that support from our AP colleagues um, and specifically when it comes to infectious disease. And and a lot of times, you know, Claire will consult on some of our our more complicated cases on this side of the street and provide context for us. So I, I, you know, gave a little bit of an example earlier as to how some of those findings can drive, you know, the microbiology workup, but but really um, having that resource available to us is, is indispensable in many instances. And so we're, we're very lucky um, that we have somebody like this to interface with. Um, and I think that I try to pick up what I can along the way. Claire's more than happy to, to sit down with me and review slides and she orients me and takes me through tissue. You know, I try to attend plate rounds with the other group as well, just to, to get a little bit more acclimated. So I'm, I'm picking up things along the way and trying to expand my skill set 
But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we provide as, you know, PhD laboratorians a useful skill set that they can tap into and gain help from as well for their complicated cases. Absolutely. So thank you both of you for such flattering comments. But honestly, it's a multidisciplinary We couldn't do it without every single pillar. That's the only reason why we can actually have the building stand and get this care, quality care for our patients. So from the laboratory technologist at the bench who is ensuring that the information that we do obtain is meaningful to our PhD CPEP colleagues who have such quality training in diagnostics and the technical expertise and, you know, kind of a lot of the advanced molecular and truly how the laboratory runs, everyone offers a skill set that is complementary to, to everyone else. But to kind of piggyback on what was said a little bit earlier, I think one of the other important things about AP and what we can contribute as IDPath AP is that there are no longer, when I was trained with my older mentors, they were like, it's fungus because that's all you need to do. It's just, it's fungus or it's AFB. Well, the AFB part is still the same, but if it's fungus, if you can give a description of that, is it yeast? Is it hyphal? Is it describe the hyphae, especially in the proper clinical context, you can give a lot of really important information so much earlier because there are no longer two drugs where everybody just gets blanketed with the one thing. Now you have lots of different medications that are available. And so I think, Jonathan, what would be very, what I try to advocate to all of my pathologist colleagues is that we can be helpful with true empiric treatment can go from being empiric to tailored in a much shorter time frame so that the patient can get on the proper treatment as opposed to always having to deal with broad spectrum therapy. And Claire, I, I think that is absolutely crucial. I will tell and John, don't get freaked out by this story because I think it's not true now, but it was definitely true when I was in training. I had an infectious disease clinician call me and this was going to be, let's say 2004 and say, Hey, have you seen the biopsy on Mr. So-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, I have it. I'm reviewing it. He goes, is it mucor or not? And I'm like, let me look. And I looked at it. My attending was there. He looked at it with me. It was definitely mucor. I said, yeah, it's mucor. And he said, okay, we're turning off the machines. So I had just basically killed that patient because my, my diagnosis, my pathological diagnosis at that time was untreatable. He had disseminated mucor disease in a bone marrow transplant patient. Like it was just a bad situation. Flash forward six years later, posiconazole, itraconazole, these other drugs are now available. So now it's like, is it mucor? Cause we're going to put them on posy, right? And so I think the field evolves and our information, especially that empiric information is crucial to making you know, these life-threatening and life-changing decisions for these patients. And that has evolved very rapidly. It's evolving rapidly in cancer, but it's also evolving rapidly in infectious disease. To go back to something that Andrew said about having to cross the street, which is a barrier, (laughs) to be a little bit more philosophical, what barriers, you know, real or imagined exist when we try to collaborate between AP and CP around infectious disease cases or just around any case? What are the barriers that you've all encountered? So I think from my perspective, you know, the laboratory and the way that it's sometimes perceived is we, we, you know, we truly are a consult service. You know, we, we provide 
important testing that drives a diagnosis, but a lot of times the the opinion of the person in the lab is sometimes overlooked or is just not asked for. Um, and we have, you know, valuable uh, pieces of information to contribute when you're trying to work out a diagnosis. One hurdle that we we sometimes have to surmount is is getting around that that stigma. You know, don't be afraid to interact with your laboratory and colleagues. Feel free to you know come down. There was an example just mentioned. You know, where there was an ID service that was very involved in the lab. I always encourage that. I, I love when clinicians come down, kick over rocks, ask questions because it gets me thinking as well. What else can we do? What are we not doing? What direction do we need to take this in to to come up with the the best possible results? So. Maybe that fear of interaction or lack of interaction is a a hurdle that I think I personally have had to deal with and try very hard in my day-to-day to to, um, bridge that gap and, and encourage interaction. So I gotta ask, we can't we can't get a group of people together without asking about COVID and the pandemic. I have to ask like what the effect of the pandemic has been on your working relationships. And sort of a follow-up to that is, did having a like really great prior working relationships within these departments, it hasn't helped you get through it, you know, hasn't helped with your response. Jonathan, why don't we start with you? I think from a resident perspective, maybe I, I've experienced the pandemic a little bit differently. I know here in Vermont, we, you know, we haven't been as affected as some places, fortunately, but it certainly turned things upside down for residents for a while especially as we tried to, you know, allocate resources and triage testing uh, that kind of fell to the residents. And we um, relied on having a good working relationship with residents. I guess we're kind of passing outside of the AP CP conversation, but if we're talking about other, other clinical specialties as, you know, as an infectious disease pathologist, how you can impact patient care. If you don't, if you don't have a good working relationship with the, the other clinical specialties in the hospital, it can be really difficult to have that conversation of, is this COVID serology testing really clinically indicated or not? And if you don't have that good working relationship, it, it's going to go poorly. But we're fortunate to have a well-respected pathology department here and a microbiology department here. So, and, and a close relationship with infectious disease, which really helped through that, that process of, you know, getting paged in the middle of the night to to ask if they can run the Cepheid rather than the Panther or whatever it might be. If you don't feel comfortable talking with with your colleagues, I imagine that the pandemic went a lot more difficult for those places. But here, I think we were very fortunate to have good relationships kind of across the board. And Karen, what about you? What is what has your experience been? Um, I think our ability to maintain or or to our um, relationship with just the different specialties or even administration in the hospital has been, uh, it's been vital because I've just recently become a supervisor, but I have seen a lot of the other stuff that has had to happen. And to be able to speak with the labor and delivery department as to, you know, asymptomatic patients, how fast you need this testing, you know, the swabs that are needed for this. I think it's, imperative that we have a really good relationship with these other areas so that they don't perceive it as we're just switching something on them and that we can speak with them and develop a rapport and you know so they know that we're all on the same side because I'm sure everybody has had to MacGyver their way around a number of situations during this whole thing so to be able to talk to people and and have that relationship is just super important. I would say that resilience 
and flexibility have never been more important. And for those of us who may be a little naturally less flexible have now become the contortionists. So you have supply chain to the variability of the disease out in the population and that, you know, all of those things that just change every fifth minute so that you have to be able to pivot. And I know speaking, I'm so proud to be able to be a part of the team that I'm part of because the resiliency that, that they've demonstrated throughout this entire thing, including everyone that is treating patients and is on that, uh, face on patient level, everyone has just really dug deep to do the best that we can for our patients. And it's invaluable. And I mean, honestly, I think that's sort of why we went into it. This just was a a new era to discover why medicine is both important and why people in medicine are the cornerstones of the excellence. I think this sort of comes back to what we were talking about very early on in this discussion too, with ID pathology, you know, encompassing, you know, all aspects, all organ systems, all that, you know, kind of stuff. And that COVID has unilaterally impacted a lot of these different services in multiple different ways. And the central sort of meeting point for all of this is COVID testing. You know, when, as um, Karen was describing, you know, when am I going to get my results? What is the appropriate swab? You know, how do I triage these? These are all important questions that, you know, in, in the laboratory we deal with on a daily basis. Add to that the, you know, moving target that is supply chain allocation, the instruments down say, how are we going to work around this? There's all sorts of just challenges that are constantly coming at us. And so I think that um, having that strong relationship with all the services that you interact with is just incredibly important, particularly in the setting of a pandemic. Yeah, I, appreciate, I appreciate everyone's comments on that. And I think where we felt this, for those of us who are infectious disease pathologists, microbiologists that, you know, by training, we're doing that in our hospital, as well as autopsy pathologists, which fit me. Um, I think early on in this pandemic, there was a very large dearth of knowledge about what to do in a death, in an autopsy, how to handle that, what specimens to collect, et cetera, et cetera. And so if anyone you want to comment on how autopsies have been handled, if they have, if they haven't, it's no big deal. But if you have, you know, if you've seen a policy change or you want to talk us through what happened at your institution from the beginning to where we are now with autopsy and how the communication with microbiology went, that, that would be interesting, I think, for our listeners. So we would, um, when there was a question of, was this patient, um, the patient died for, and they, they wanted an autopsy if, was this patient positive? Um, we have a lot of, we are, we have an autopsy driven, our, our service for autopsy is learner driven. And so, especially at the very beginning of this pandemic, there was so little that was known that I think there was some caution expressed to if a patient was positive for COVID, is there a more limited autopsy that could then answer the question as opposed to kind of the stem to stern that, that we would typically um, employ? So I did not participate in any autopsies personally. Um, I definitely was much more on the laboratory keeping the testing viable. 
side of things. But we did on occasion provide supplies to test for COVID to determine whether an autopsy would then occur. And John, as a trainee, did you see a change in how autopsies were dealt with from the beginning to the end and the relationship between APCP over that time? Yeah, so to be honest, I also haven't participated in any autopsy since COVID hit. I finished up my autopsy training early, but uh, we, yeah, we definitely initially trainees were not involved in any cases that there was suspicion for for COVID. But over time, that did change, and now our our residents are performing autopsies on patients that that have known COVID. Um, just as we've you know as we've come to understand how precautions work, and I think especially now that the vaccine is coming out, or I think we're being able to get more back to normalcy in our autopsy service. Excellent. Yeah. So, and I, Claire used a word earlier about, she was talking about resiliency, about her team, and that she loves being a part of that team. And I want to bring up a more formal term, which are diagnostic management teams or multidisciplinary management teams. So any comments on how APCB communication and infectious disease are being incorporated into MDTs or MMTs? I would love there to be a formal occurrence of that. That definitely is something that when I first uh, heard about that as a resident, I thought that was just so cool because there's so much information that's forever rapidly changing in each individual field. There's no way that everyone can keep up with their field, much less everyone else's also. So my practice here is very consultant-based type I try to be an active informal member of a diagnostic management team, whether it's be for utilization so that we can help tailor the workup or the clinical care of patient in the correct, most high yield fashion, or if it's in an education piece or, or any of the others, we definitely have a very bold view that the information that the laboratory is not simply an information dispensary that we are a bridge between the clinical side and the pathophysiology exhibited by the patient and the laboratory and how we can actually determine the best testing and or the best interventions based on that hybrid as opposed to everything being siloed. John, what do you think? Yeah, I honestly don't have a, a whole lot of experience with that. Michael Aposado will be very sad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I think being able to be involved with multiple aspects of care, with multiple aspects of hospital administration. I mean, I, I think microbiologists, infectious disease pathologists have a very important role to play, especially during a pandemic. I know that our microbiologists were very actively involved in a lot of decision-making that went in. And so I, uh, you know, I do think that is very important. Unfortunately, I wasn't as, as actively involved. We were kind of residents off hands for a while and then kind of back on deck it's something that I look forward to and that I think will be important part of, of a career would just be to to be sure that you're collaborating and, and taking part in anything that's related to microbiology. Well, when you get to Mayo, Bobby and Audrey are definitely going to have you hands-on involved in everything. Absolutely. So don't worry about that. I was just thinking, you know, one of the things that that's come out of the, you know, the COVID-19 situation in the lab is that it, it actually has sort of shown a, a spotlight on what actually goes on and a lot of outside 
folks, whether they be, you know, in administration or from other services have really gained an appreciation, I think, for what goes on here. And so that in itself helps to foster a lot of this interaction between, you know, management teams and, you know, pathologists, medical technologists, just having a better understanding as to what actually goes on at the bench and what goes on in the clinical environment in, in the lab, I think will, will really to help sort of foster that collaborative effort and drive this forward as, as we move on. COVID's taught us a lot of lessons for better or for worse. And I think that hopefully this will be one of the better ones that we take away from it and, and continue to move forward. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it kind of wraps up, I think, into kind of my last question is for all of you guys, what does the future of this field look like? I mean, we've, we've already ascertained it's a, it's a pretty small field. There's not a whole lot of you guys. Obviously, over the last hour, we've demonstrated how just how important these kinds of positions are. But what does the future look like? Where do we go from here? Okay, I'll jump in. So it's really one of the things that has been rapidly changing is advanced diagnostics. And I really feel like the ID pathologist or the um, ID pathologist microbiologist is going to become increasingly important because not only do you have this advanced technology that you can get answers, it's really difficult to determine what is important or clinically relevant versus other things. So for example, microbiology really presents a a very difficult conundrum when it comes to advanced diagnostics because we are colonized with everything. And then all of the media that is supposed to be sterile still has bacterial DNA of some variety, not all of it necessarily, but you get my point. It's very difficult to tuss out what is important versus not. And then the other thing I would say, especially in the AP field, John, and you know, in your future and my future, is that there are more transplants. There's more immunosuppressants. As personalized medicine just evolves into everybody, the immunomodulators out there and everything else, we're really going to see more in trickier cases of opportunistic infection. And so the being able to dovetail both the anatomic pathology and the advanced diagnostics, I think is is going to be an extremely important role that we will continue to play. Karen, how do you see the future of of microbiology and, and the integration of AP and CP for patients? I think that Kelly was saying there's been a spotlight on what being a medical technologist is as someone who's been one for 25 years. I know that most people have no clue as to what I do and it's, you know, have absolutely no idea. And so it's kind of, you know, been nice that people actually recognize that we are a vital part of this whole thing. And I do think that we have in microbiology learned how to adapt and overcome multiple difficult situations, you know, from multiple employees not being able to be here to supply chain issues to dealing with administration. And so I think we've seen some, as Claire said, some real resiliency and a lot of ability to adapt to difficult situations. And I think anybody who's been in microbiology during this last year has just has a lot of war stories to be able to share with future generations as to what this has been like and, and, and things that we can teach people in the future and things that we need to look out for. I know some of the supply chain issues kind of hit us and blindsided us. So 
I think we're better prepared should anything like this happen again in the future or it will happen again at some point, but it's been an experience and it's been, I'm amazed by all of my coworkers and Dr. McCormick and Dr. Cavoti and Dr. Clark. It's just, it's, um, I don't know, it's career affirming. I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. I appreciate you say that. And I will say that from the point of view of ASCP, we are hoping and trying to, with you, capitalize on this spotlight to improve the situation for our medical technologists around the country uh, with regard to wages and salary and operations, et cetera. I think that we have a real chance to make a difference and, and really highlight that. And we're doing our best to do that. So I really think- appreciate it. Thank you. We just want to thank again everybody for participating. I think this has been an extremely interesting discussion. I think it's rare that we get a group of people in a niche specialty that's so interesting yet so under misunderstood together. And so I know that people have learned a lot. I know I've learned a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I just want to take the opportunity to tell our listeners to A, tell your colleagues about the podcast. And hey, maybe you can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator so you don't miss future episodes. And finally, I just want to remind everyone that you can receive CME or CLE credit for listening to our podcast. Go to Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website, www.ascp.org.